Alfred Lord Tennyson once said of fishermen and the sea, Break, break, break on thy cold gray stones, O sea, and I would that my tongue could utter the thoughts that arise in me. O well for the fisherman's boy that he shouts with his sister at play. O well for the sailor lad that he sings in his boat on the bay. And the stately ships go on to their haven under the hill. But oh, for the touch of a vanished hand and the sound of a voice that is still. Break, break, break at the foot of thy crags, O sea. But the tender grace of a day that is dead will never come back to me. The calm of the ocean can be one of serenity for those who sail its waters. But in the blink of an eye, the forces of nature can swamp the largest of seagoing vessels. Many a seafarer have lost their lives to the briny deep, and all sailors understand and accept that risk. But when lives are lost on the ocean to the homicidal rage of a man, There can be no understanding of the loss or acceptance of a life ended in such a manner. Hi guys, this is Dana, and today JR and I will look at the worst mass murder in the history of Alaska, a heinous crime that took the lives of eight people, two of them young children, a horrific crime from 1982 that remains unsolved to this day. This is the story of the Investorship Murders. Before we get into the story, we we want to point out that some pictures in this episode to illustrate the narrative, such as how ships are tied up while in harbor, or interior shots of similar type ships to the investor will be used. We do try to slap a cautionary caption on any picture, not of the actual event, place, or etc. Okay, now on to the story. The nice thing about living in a small town is that when you don't know what you're doing, someone else surely does. That saying certainly fit the fishing village of Craig, Alaska, a seaside community on the southwestern side of the state. Only 9.4 square miles in size, it is the largest city on Prince Wales Island, boasting a population of near 1,200 souls who mostly made their living fishing commercially with just a tad of timber cutting for the sake of variety. A three-quarter moon shone brightly over the North Cove dock on the night of September 5, 1982. The 58-foot Perth Investor was tied off with two other fishing vessels, gently rocking with the ocean current. Eight people were sleeping on board the commercial fishing craft. 28-year-old Mark and Irene Colthurst, their two children, 5-year-old Kimberly Colthurst, and her little brother, four-year-old John Colthurst, and four deckhands, Mike Stewart, Dean Moon, Jerome Cowan, all 19 years of age, and 18-year-old Chris Heyman. The pinking sounds of a 22 caliber weapon echoed faintly from the cabin of the ship, unheard on the deserted dock, as were any screams or moans that might have sounded from dying throats. The next morning, white ship trimmed in red, her name embossed on both port and starboard sides of the bow, began drifting away from the other boats sometime around 6 a.m. 
A deckhand on a neighboring vessel waved to a solitary figure standing in the departing investor's wheelhouse. A figure standing at the wheel threw up a hand in reply before both ship and figure disappeared in the fog-shrouded morning mist. Regarding the location of the investor while anchored off of Fish Egg Island, we believe, and what we will illustrate with maps, is that the investor was anchored along the southeast side of the island. Figuring the killer would want to go a direct route to anchor the boat and get away from it as fast as possible, the southeast side of the island is the closest, fits the one mile radius, and would leave the ship visible to people in the town. By 7 a.m. on September the 6th, the killer has the investor motoring across the waters of the Gulf of Alaska. It was close to 7.30 a.m., give or take a few minutes, when the investor was spied anchored just offshore of nearby Fish Egg Island by the crew of a passing ship. The craft was a little bit further away from Craig than a couple of rock throws, but not by much, maybe a little less than a mile, parked on the east-southeast side of the aptly named island in full view of anyone in Craig. After anchoring the investor, the killer had opened the seacocks in an apparent attempt to sink the ship. It would have been possible had the ship been motoring across the water, but at anchor, the seacocks were above the waterline, so the mighty fishing vessel simply floated and bobbed about, with eight bloodied bodies lying piled up in a heap in the crew quarters. Here's where the navigational plot thickens. Regarding the skiff, stories say it was at the main harbor, while others say the cold storage dock, and some even mention the cannery dock. We are going to show all three locations on the maps and let it go with that. Suffice it to say the skiff was tied off each time in Craig. As the day progressed, the gray skiff from the investor was noticed tied off at the dock no one seemingly thinking anything was amiss. It was common enough that a crewman would be sent back to town from the mothership to pick up items forgotten, damaged, or lost. A front bringing fog rolled into the area blanketing the investor and the surrounding area. The wonderment of why Captain Colthurst would lay his ship up at anchor with no apparent activity going on on board was absorbed in the mist and forgotten. As the sun burned away the fog on September 7th, folks in Craig and passing ships noticed the dormant investor still anchored off the same spot of Fish Egg Island. Many wondered why the investor was not actively pursuing salmon as the season was due to end in just a few days. It was early evening, about 4.30 or so, and the crew of the trawler casino saw heavy dark smoke floating skyward from the investor. Her captain radioed for assistance from the state police and the Coast Guard as the casino churned across the waters towards the flaming vessel. The casino was traveling at flank speed when crew members spotted a gray skiff speeding away from the area of the investor. Sailors rushed to the assistance of ships in distress. To see a skiff speeding away indicated to the crew of casino that it must have been a crew member going for help. The lone occupant, however, did not appear as if he was interested in stopping to chat. 
So the captain of the casino had to do some fancy naval blocking maneuvers before the skiff's pilot heaved to. Again, the crew thought it unusual that the young male wearing a ball cap didn't seek their help, rather was trying to avoid them. However, the urgency of the situation distracted the crew from the odd behavior of the man. The conversation was brief as the skiff sped away towards Craig and the casino continued towards the flaming investor. Other ships began arriving sporadically throughout the evening, including local and state police. What the firefighters lacked in equipment they made up for was spunk and determination. The fire was knocked down enough that a rescue party was able to board the boat, but all they found were badly charred bodies before the fire kicked up again. Once the fire was finally extinguished, the investor was towed to the nearby shore of Fish Egg Island to prevent it from sinking. Police were operating under the impression that this was nothing more than a horrific accident. I jumped in the skiff and ran out to check on the boat. Once we had the fire out, we towed her into the beach so she wouldn't sink. Police start poking through what they can, and it's everybody's worst fear. They start recovering bodies. In the area of the pilot house of the investor, police find four burned bodies. Investigators fear the crew and the Colthurst family has perished in a tragic accident. At that time, it was realized that the bodies had bullet holes in them. These victims didn't just die in a boat fire. They were murdered. And we took them out so we could dump shovel loads of ashes. Unfortunately, most of our evidence had burned up at that point. It was horrific. Topsies, they found that the victims had bullet wounds from a 22 caliber firearm. But that was about it. Over the next few days, Mark Colthurst and his wife, Irene, and their little daughter, Kimberly, as well as Michael Stewart, are identified as the four bodies found in the wreckage of the investor. Pathology, because we're talking about just, there was nothing left of the bodies, but just fragments. The coroner identified Chris Heyman and Jerome Keown. I just did eventually say yes, Part of a jawbone and tooth fragment were matched dental records of Dean Moon. We never did find the body of young John. They figured that he was totally consumed in the fire. Let us begin looking into this case by retracing the steps of the family and crew. On September 5th, the Colthursts and their crew of four had celebrated Mark's birthday at a local establishment called Ruth Ann's Restaurant over at 300 Front Street in downtown Craig. It wasn't just a birthday that had everyone in a festive mood. The investor had brought in a large haul of salmon the previous week, and Captain Colthurst was expecting the, that catch to bring in $30,000 or more. The family and crew had left the eatery around 9.30 p.m. and were last seen alive crossing over to their boat at about 10 p.m. What do we mean crossing over? Glad you asked. You see, the investor was tied up to two other ships that were, of course, tied to the dock. The ships Defiant and Decade were tied to the dock with the investor being the third wheel. 
This meant that the Colthurst family and their crew could only board the investor by traipsing across the other two ships. So anyone coming to or leaving the investor had to cross two other ships. And in the case of the killer, he had to do so without being seen by the crews of either vessel. There is no such thing as a perfect crime, only an imperfect investigation. That might be, but the killer must have had three rabbit's feet and a couple of horseshoes in his pockets to not get got by the police. He crossed over two ships and boarded the investor sometime after 10 p.m. He probably waited till the crewmen on the other ships were partied out and had gone to sleep. If he did cross while the crews were still awake, then he was a lucky man indeed. All it would have taken is one crewman, drunk or otherwise, to come out on deck to spoil his plan. We know the killer boarded either post 10 p.m. on the 5th or in the early morning hours of the 6th. He is armed with a 22 caliber weapon or weapons. We know that one of the weapons or the weapon is a semi-auto since casings were later recovered. A semi-auto would have left ejection marks on the casings, unless the casings were too irreparably damaged to tell. He could have had a revolver and reloaded by dumping the empty casings from the cylinder. There are 22 caliber weapons that hold up to eight rounds of ammo. In any event, he killed everyone aboard the ship and waited until it was light enough outside to begin drifting out of the North Harbor. He was seen doing so between 6 and 6.45 a.m. He motored to Fish Egg Island, anchored the ship, opened the seacocks in an attempt to sink the vessel, and made his escape on the skiff, probably congratulating himself on how he disposed of the ship, crew, and evidence. The investor is seen anchored at 7.30 a.m. or so by a passing ship. It is unknown if the killer was still on the investor when seen by the other vessel. Would the skiff have been visible and the killer still on board at 7.30? Had he already left? The investor remains anchored all day on the 6th and through the night. On the 7th, the ship has not sunk and the killer realizes he will have to have a plan B. He buys gasoline or steals some and heads out in the skiff that is still tied up to the dock. He pours the gas and sets it on fire. At around 4.30 p.m., the investor is seen burning by the casino who runs into the skiff on its way out. The killer docks the skiff for the final time, speaks to several people on the dock, and then disappears. The timeline goes September 5th, 10 p.m., family and crew last seen alive. September 6th, 6 to 6.45 a.m., the investor is floating out of the dock. September 6th, 7.30 a.m., the investor is anchored. September 7th in the a.m., the investor is still at the anchor. September 7th, 4.30 p.m., the investor is now on fire, the skiff seen. Between 1986 and 1988, John Peel, a former crewman on the investor, was taken to trial for the arson and murders. The first trial ended in a hung jury, and in the second case, the jury found him not guilty. Does that mean he did not do it? Absolutely not. What was the motive? State police said Peel had a grudge against Mark Colthurst for firing him. 
So why kill eight people if you're only mad at one? Maybe someone thought Mark had gotten his money for the big salmon catch and the killer wanted the money. If the killer thought Mark had the $30,000 on the ship, he didn't plan very well since Mark had to write a check to a friend for $100 so he could pay for the birthday dinner on the night of the 5th. Who benefited from the death of the Colthurst family? Who benefited from the loss of the ship to a fire? Of course, this must be about more than a simple insurance scam. Why kill eight people just for boat money? This is a sad, frustrating story. A killer is seen by at least a half dozen people in broad daylight. He even speaks to many of those people. The one problem is that during salmon season, the population of Craig jumps up with a lot of new faces in town. We do wonder why the state police didn't get the skiff and take it to the forensic lab, let everything dry, and then process it all. What did they have to lose? There is no statute of limitations on murder, so the case can still be closed with an arrest and a conviction, unless it's Peel. He is now covered by double jeopardy. They could charge him with federal crimes and haul him back to court. That would not fall under the Double Jeopardy Clause. That will wrap up this episode of Coffee, Tea, and Crime. Thank you for watching. Let us know in the comments below what your theory is on this puzzling mystery. And JR and I will see you on the next case.